Welcome back to the Mandarin Blueprint Podcast. My name is Phil Crimmins. Today's podcast is a number of questions and comments that came in from our course members, from people on the course, and also people who are just checking out Mandarin Blueprint, deciding if it is the way they wish to learn Chinese. And so uh, we'll talk about all of those. First, a couple of course updates, though. So we are working diligently on our longer form content in phases five in the intermediate course. And uh, a, couple, a few weeks ago, I released the text tracking videos for phase four. So in phase four, you get your first bits of longer form content after phase three focuses on individual sentences. And so the videos that you can download anywhere in phase four are text tracking. So you can have them on your phone. Uh, it'll have the audio and the video and the uh, the text will be tracked according to the audio on the video. So it makes it easier to follow and shadow. We also have them at male and female audio at native and 80% speed so uh, that you can make sure you find the voice that fits your range as well as uh, the speed that'll allow you to keep up with it to begin with and then eventually work your way up to native speed. We're working on the same thing now for phase five of the course, which are longer stories that have a bit more of a plot to them. So like thing, more stuff is happening. Uh, there's more context for why things are going on. A lot of them are fairy tales like uh, Little Little Red Riding Hood or The Three Little Pigs and things like that. Um, but, of course, we have the different characters and we have, uh, you know, the, the older brother pig, the middle brother pig, the younger pig, and the big bad wolf and all that stuff for uh, Three Little Pigs. And so you get these, these recognizable stories. We also have a few uh, Chinese fairy tales in there so you can get a sense of the types of stories that they'll tell kids in China. And all of these are very helpful in getting you to real language acquisition because real language acquisition occurs when you're seeing lots of content that is understandable. If you understand the message, if it's comprehensible, comprehensible input, this is what will get you to acquisition. And this is good and bad news. Now, the bad news is that this is a very unconscious process. If you just keep reading, there isn't like a moment where you go like, I haven't acquired Chinese. And then you read another sentence and you go, I've acquired Chinese, right? It doesn't happen like that. It's very subtle, unconscious. It's a buildup of uh, many bricks, many understanding bricks. And then eventually you realize, oh, that, there's actually a structure here. And of course... You never really stop building because you could think of uh, learning a language as uh, building a building or you could think of it as building a city because really at the end of the day, there's never an end to it. There's always more to learn. You just get more and more specialized as time goes on. And uh, so when it comes to language acquisition, the key is that you have comprehensible input and things you can understand. Now, in phases four and five of the course, we start you off at 90%. Uh, understanding. And that's because when you don't have that many characters in your arsenal, and you don't have that many words in your arsenal relatively, it's hard to make stories that are interesting at all or have any kind of plot or have any kind of uh, engaging material uh, while also keeping it at 98% comprehension. 98% comprehension is a special number because the extensive reading foundation did a lot of research on trying to figure out what's the level of comprehension that's ideal for acquisition. And the answer is 98%. And it's, by the way, it's not 100%. 100% is obviously good, but 98% um, is actually a little better because 98% allows you to have enough context to understand the remaining 2%. So 
uh, there's this great uh, example that we used to show in our acquisition workshop when we taught it live, where it would show English and it would show 80% comprehension. And every, uh, I guess it would be every fifth word would be just sort of gibberish. You know, I went to the Sporgel and I found some mensch or something like that, right? So it's got this sort of nonsense words. And then uh, it shows you that at 90% and then it shows at 98%. And it's funny, when you read the 98% one, you can tell what the word probably means because you've got enough context surrounding it. So the question, though, is how do we how do we deal with this? Well, in phases four and five, what we do is we introduce you the longer form content at 90%. We, of course, uh, preview each of the sentences. We tell you what the words are that you don't know, and we give them a definition and opinion. But then... When you've reached a stage in the course where you know 98%, uh, we'll reintroduce it to you and tell you, hey, read it again now that you're at 98%. And so really phases four and five are kind of an introduction to reading long-form content, but it's not until the intermediate course that you start getting every bit of long-form content that's 98%. Now, a couple notes on this. One, for phase five, we've already done this actually. We've already... um, even though I'm still working on the text tracking videos for those, uh, a few months back, we already analyzed the phase five stories to understand when they become 98% comprehension. So I'm making the text tracking videos for both the 90% version and the 98% version, and I'll upload them to their uh, respective parts of phase five and the intermediate course uh, when they're ready to go. But for phase four, we never actually analyzed when they're 98%. So that's another step that we're going to take soon. And the other thing that we're going to do is because in phase four and five, the preview of the lesson, or sorry, I should say the the lessons themselves are only around 90% comprehension, we're going to put a preview lesson before each of them. And for phases four and five, the preview lessons are going to be done by Luke and I. However, once you get to the intermediate course, we're planning on having the preview lessons done by our favorite teacher from Sichuan University, Yo Lao Shi. Um, now don't hold me to that yet. He's, he's expressed interest in helping us out, but like, uh, before when we had ideas for him, it was a little bit too broad. This is going to be a lot more specific. It's going to be like, Hey, preview this, this, uh, longer form piece of content. But the way we figure it is that in phases four and five, you're probably not quite ready to have a Chinese teacher explain it to you in Chinese. Uh, but by the intermediate course, you should be, especially Yola, sure, because he's the type of guy who, uh, he he knows how to communicate with um, people who are learning Chinese in a way that they can understand very well. He's an excellent teacher. So hopefully we'll get him doing the previews for those. And there are 60 uh, sets of stories and articles and uh, opinion pieces that are longer form in the inter- intermediate course. And in the intermediate course, we are not going to introduce them to you at all until they're 98% comprehension, which is what one of the other things I've been doing recently is focusing on the intermediate longer form content and been editing it and working through it with Annie and uh, another Chinese teacher to try to make sure there's no excess content that is um, above your level too much. It's always at 98% comprehension approximately. And, um, you know, so this is important because you need to start getting lots of input of this type when you get to the intermediate course. Also, some people in the intermediate course were saying that 
They wanted to have more sentences, more example sentences for each word. And I think this is going to address a lot of that problem because at the end of each level will be three longer form bits of content, which will help reinforce the words you learned in that level. So uh, it, I would definitely recommend that you continue to um, just follow the intermediate course as it is, and you'll find soon that the longer form bits of content are going to help you solidify that intermediate course knowledge. So one final note I want to make about the longer form content. One of the things you'll discover as you start to read Chinese is that there are a lot of words that are relatively low frequency on an individual level. But if you look at any Chinese article, right, that you find in the news or that you find uh, in a podcast or something like that, there are going to be a number of low frequency words. Each one of them on an individual basis probably wouldn't be worth learning. However, because low frequency words are often made up of characters that you know, you can generally figure out what they mean. And so what that means is that when you first start in the intermediate course, there are going to be some words that are made up of characters you know, but you may not have actually used before. But the thing is that Chinese, unlike other languages, it's actually one of the advantages of Chinese, is that words have a possibility of being understood, even if you've never particularly uh, seen them before, on two levels. The one level every language has, which is that you can you can figure it out through the context of the article you're reading. So if there's that one word you don't know, but the whole rest of the paragraph you understand, you can probably figure it out through context. And every language can do that. But Chinese has the ability, unlike other languages, for you to have a relationship with the two characters of the word, and then to say, okay, even though I've never seen these two characters put together, the fact that it's placed in the paragraph in this way, and the fact that I know those two characters and I have a relationship with each of them, tells me what it probably means. And the reason why I'm emphasizing this is that if you wanted to drill down into the small little details of every single word, you're actually there becomes a point where it becomes counterproductive. Because for high-frequency words, yes, you want to spend time on each one and understand how they work. For individual characters, it's like learning the alphabet. How are you going to know English without knowing the alphabet? you got to know them. But when you start to get to lower-frequency words, like I said before, you're going to get that through context, and you're going to understand through context. What is this article about? Is it about um, the new phenomenon of young female entrepreneurs in China? Is it about uh, the... Chinese foreign ministry responding to uh, some world event? Is it um, an article about cooking, right? Like, so there's all sorts of things that may give you the context you need to know, plus, you know, the characters. And ultimately, what I'm saying here is that Mandarin Blueprint should get you to the point where you can know enough of the characters, know enough of the high frequency words, that when you go come to actual content, your brain is good enough at understanding these lower frequency words that only come up based on the context of the individual article you're reading. So this is all just to say that longer form content really is the way forward. It gets you lots of sentences. It gets you lots of comprehensible input. And so that's why we're focusing so much on that. That's also why we don't have a grammar point today. We've kind of made all the videos for the grammar points we've written. And when it comes to prioritizing our time, we'd rather get work on the stuff that gets you actual language acquisition, not just the stuff that 
makes you think about it analytically. And it's not that that stuff is bad. It's just that if we're going to prioritize our time, we're going to get you to the actual acquisition first, and then we'll focus more on the grammar, the grammar materials. So let's move on to the comments and questions. First question here is from Nick Sims in the community. He says, I'm on level 13 and still doing reviews from the pronunciation deck. Is that normal? Should I continue? I find that now I'm in sentences. It's taking a lot more time and I'm wanting to fly by the older pronunciation deck to get to the time intensive sentences. Yes. So here's what you can, how you can think of Anki. So Anki, when it's showing you a review card, well, first of all, let's, let's set up one thing that's clear. By level 13, you've certainly seen all of the cards in the pronunciation deck at least once. So there are no more new cards. So what that means, there are only review cards. If a review card is showing up in the pronunciation deck, it's because you have reached the point where Anki's algorithm says you have a 90 to 95% likelihood of remembering this particular fact. Now the pronunciation deck, the fact you're trying to remember is how do I articulate this syllable properly? Now, I dare say by level 13, while it is true that you're getting many new things that uh, are there to uh, pronounce, your pronunciation is still a work in progress. It's always something that you, it really never stops being a work in progress. It just becomes less of your focus as time goes on. Um, and so it is good to have a deck where the sort of mode of your brain is to think, make sure I'm pronouncing this properly. Now, what's going to happen naturally, if you only have review cards, and you're not getting any new cards, is that you're going to uh, have fewer and fewer review cards every day. So maybe after you've just finished the pronunciation deck, and there's, you've just done your last new card, you might have 60 reviews a day, approximately. But you do that for a month, and the average review count per day has gone down to 50. And then you do that for a month, and now the average review count has gone down to 30. Because if there's no new cards coming in, the interval on all the review cards is getting longer and longer. And so the longer the intervals amongst the cards, the bigger the gap between them, and the bigger, and the, therefore the fewer daily cards you're going to have to do. To eventually you'd reach the point where you'd have like one, two, three cards a day. And... So my sense of it is you should continue to do the pronunciation cards because eventually you're going to have so few to do per day that it's not going to be any kind of a stress. And it's also good to have those, like I said, have that mode of your review time that is focused specifically on pronunciation. So now, as for the time-intensive phase three sentences, remember that they're the most time-intensive now that they ever will be right? In level 13, that's the beginning of phase three. That's the beginning of learning sentences in the first place. So they're brand new and they take more time. So they will take less time in the future. And also remember, uh, and this is very important, there is a time with the sentence cards to focus on the audio and there is a time to uh, not focus on the audio. Now, there's something to be, there's something about this too that's important, which is that audio in the cards, we have both male and female. If you're, like, for example, Nick here, he probably will do better with Jerry's audio. Uh, and so he could consider removing the audio from Annie. Uh, and so if he re removes the audio from Annie in Browse, just goes through the level and just deletes it, you can just directly highlight and delete in Browse, uh, then that will make the audio a little bit faster. But also, it's okay to occasionally just practice your speed reading and ignore the audio. That's fine. I mean, like, obviously... 
sometimes you want to listen to the audio and you want to shadow and all of that. But it's also okay to say, okay, what's the sentence mean? What's the missing character? Got it. Move on. What's the sentence? What's it mean? What's the missing character? Got it. Move on, right? And that way you can practice getting fast at reading, which is actually very useful should you want to take the HSK tests at some point because reading quickly is a pretty important element to the HSK text, uh, tests, especially the higher level ones. Next, Larry Clough in the community. I am a few weeks into the Foundation series, and I have a question. In the Hanzo movie method, what is the difference between sets and rooms? And how do you imagine a room inside of a set? As an example, the word tong. I picked my set as the open garage at my teenage house because this is where I played ping pong. Since this word is second tone, the room within the set is the kitchen, but I have a hard time imagining a kitchen in a garage since they are two separate locations. Any advice? Yes. So the difference between rooms and sets is just a matter of boundaries. So while I understand why you picked the garage for ping pong to match with the sound ONG, it should be the whole house. So let's see here. I picked the set as the open garage of my teenage house. So I'm going to assume that your teenage house is not the one, the set that you're using for your childhood home. So the set for ONG should be the entire teenage house, not just the garage, because the rooms represent the tones and the entire set represents the pinion final. So the pinion final is ONG and that's the teenage house. Now ONG first tone is outside the entrance of the teenage house. ONG second tone is the kitchen or just inside the entrance of the teenage house. Third tone could be the garage, perhaps. Uh, that wouldn't be a bad idea to have it as the garage. Or it could be the living room or the bedroom. And then fourth tone would be the bathroom or perhaps the backyard. And so the rooms are the boundaries within the set that represent the tone. The uh, pinion final is the entire set. So hopefully that clarifies that and you'll get that. That's not going to take you very long to master. Sabrina Sutherland on bonus. Strategy is everything while learning Chinese. And so this was a video uh, that we made a couple of years ago in a series that's in our rapid acquisition crash course. And it's also a bonus in the Mandarin Blueprint method. Sabrina says, this particular video really resonates. I have always wondered why learning a language was so difficult for me. It makes perfect sense that trying to learn a language as an academic subject is almost impossible. It's like I'm on the outside looking in and just regurgitating random pieces of information I'm given to memorize rather than actually being on the inside and absorbing the language so it comes out naturally. Thank you for making a program that actually works for me. And so, well, of course, it's our pleasure and we realize, I mean, in a way you're recognizing why we made Mandarin Blueprint in the first place, Sabrina, because we said, all right, uh, nobody is doing this correctly. I mean, some people are doing it correctly in part, um, but they're not making a system that's built on the actual language acquisition rules. And I can't blame them because suppose you're teaching language at a place like Sichuan University where I got my degree. Well, to teach language, or I should say to demonstrate how to acquire language properly is difficult to test test for a few years, right? Or maybe a few semesters or whatever, because it's not something that is very fact-based. It's much more eclectic. It involves a lot more listening and getting a lot of input. And so the question of how do you test a person during this time is, it's a challenging question. So if you want to make a curriculum, you got to test people. Otherwise, how do they know how, what they're doing or what, or whether or not they're making progress and how do you report to the people who uh, are 
the administrators of a university that your program is working, right? Um, because with a language, you know, as we know, little children, they don't start speaking language uh, for a couple of years. And it's obviously kind of just uh, babble before then. And when they start speaking, their grammar's all off and they're, they're saying incorrect words. And they're pronouncing things incorrectly. It takes them a long time to actually start producing language in a, in a way that is comprehensible. Sure, as adults, we might be able to do that process a bit faster, but for the first year or two, you're going to have trouble testing things. So they break it down into testable chunks, but they, in doing so, in breaking it down into the test testable chunks, they sacrifice actual language acquisition, which is, uh, it's a real shame. And to be honest, like, you know, it's funny, my degree is in Chinese language, and I almost feel like that degree shouldn't exist. It shouldn't actually be a real degree. <laughs> you know, so I'm basically like, trashing my own academic credentials but like it was actually a good experience for me because as a curriculum creator i was able to see okay this was a bummer to do this and i want the people at mandarin blueprint not to have to deal with that i want them to feel like i'm actually succeeding in this and so on in the long run you'd be able to test it in the long run you'd be able to test it because you'd be able to say okay can you understand this paragraph and like answer some questions about it but getting to the point of understanding the paragraph i mean it would be pretty tough now obviously I have some ideas about how you might be able to test if somebody's making progress. For example, you could have similar questions to what we have on our Anki cards. Um, but nonetheless, it's still not a very uh, effective way of teaching. It's mostly top-down, which is the problem where you really need to learn a language, especially a language like Chinese, with more of a bottom-up approach. Sure, you can learn some things top-down, but in academia, it's almost all top-down. And that's way too much pressure to put on your brain. And it also makes you have far too analytical a relationship with Chinese. Like I'll always remember there was a an Irish woman in my uh, class at um, in a an elective class at Sichuan University. And this is when I was in the intermediate one group. And so that meant I had, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six semesters remaining before I was going to graduate. And there was this Irish woman in my class, and she was really struggling to get across what she wanted to say in the class. And I thought, oh, she's probably also in the intermediate course or something. And then I found out she was in the highest advanced course. And I thought, this is an ex example of how you could go through university the whole time and never actually acquire the language and instead create this analysis paralysis. Like, it was such a stark thing where I realized she has to think so hard about everything she's saying because everything that she's been taught about how to learn is based in breaking things down analytically, but that's not how you acquire a language. And so she wasn't actually using her natural evolved abilities to her advantage. And this was so, and there was many other examples of this. There was another, there was a British woman there who, uh, her Chinese was pretty decent, but I remember her saying I can't wait to graduate so I can get out of here and never look at Chinese again, which was another thing that made me go, what? You, you went to school for this and now you feel like annoyed with the language and frustrated with the language and you want to get away from it? So essentially what Sichuan University did was made you make you hate Chinese. Jeez, this is like just so bad. And when you see that up close, you go, I got to help these people because it's worth learning Chinese. My gosh, I love it. It's so fun. Every day I, I engage with Chinese and feel an awe for the whole language and the um, poetic nature of it and the philosophy behind it and all of the, you know, sort of cultural background. It's, it's beautiful, but that's because I'm 
taking an approach that is real acquisition as opposed to this academic, overly analytical, make you hate it, make you feel like you suck because you can't ever get a sense of fluency. I just, you know, this is what is the underlining underlying fire for what keeps us motivated day to day because we're just like, we must end this stupid way of learning um, and do something that's much more uh, effective. So thank you for leaving that comment, Sabrina, and sorry for the rant. Thomas Brand on how to make a movie with Sure 10. I noticed that the staff appears before the razor blade. So what he's referring to is that the character 10, Sure, has two strokes, a horizontal stroke and a vertical stroke. And um, in the mnemonic scene, the vertical stroke is represented by Gandalf's staff, and the horizontal stroke is represented by the razor blade. He says, I've got it the other way around to help me remember the stroke order. Right, and the stroke order for 10, sure, is the horizontal line first, followed by the vertical line. And in the scene, the uh, staff, which represents the vertical line, shows up first, and then the razor blade comes later. And so I appreciate that Thomas is trying to say, well... You know, should I put the razor blade first because that's the first in the stroke order? And I totally get that, but in our experience, it's unnecessary. Um, the physical act of drawing the character does not seem to have any relationship in terms of, like, the stroke order. It doesn't seem to have any relationship between when the objects show up in the mnemonic scene. Uh, you might think they would, but this is, um, you know, what, what we call this uh, <laughs> future tripping. Uh, so... <laughs> There's a thing that we humans do that's actually a bit of a mistake, and it's a lot of, um, like, Buddhists and Taoists will, and Stoics, for that matter, will admonish people not to do this, which is what some people call future tripping. And future tripping is when you start tripping on a concern about the future or what's going to happen, and this is a minor version of it. So Thomas is going, is this going to mess up my stroke order by not having it in the correct order? And the answer is, if you would just if you just play it out... Uh, no, it won't, because it there's, for whatever reason, there just doesn't seem to be a relationship between uh, how, where they show up in the mnemonic scene versus how you write it. And if you just follow the stroke order gifts, uh, it's no problem. And, uh, and of course, always remember that the point of the mnemonic scene is not to remember the scene forever. It's just to remember the scene long enough so that you memorize the character components the pronunciation, the tone, and the meaning until you see it in context enough that you just remember it forever. And that's uh, in the same way that you remember words forever in your native language after you've used them enough, That will, the same thing will happen with Chinese. And so the Henza movie method is just a bridge to get you to that point because you have to learn a lot of characters before you can even start seeing them in context. So how are you going to remember them that long? By rote learning? No, you're not. So you need to do something more effective, and that's what this is. Next, from... Raina Lin on Unit 9 wrap-up. She said, I did so much better on these Anki cards than I expected. I'm still working on listening skills and not even close to native speed audio, but I feel encouraged by being able to hear the difference better than I used to. So yeah, this is of course the end of pronunciation mastery with only one uh, review chapter to go after that review unit. And so uh, great job, Raina. Yeah, the Anki cards really do help and you know, this is all just a process. Everybody's in the process at the moment who's on the course. They're, they're in some stage where they've been, you know, going through and figuring out, okay, this uh, this sound is here, and how do I 
recognize the second tone? How do I produce the second tone? Um, you know, how do I uh, understand the difference between J, Q, and X and what vowels they can be placed with and how to connect them to finals? And like, these are all things that you got to go through. And luckily, the path is laid out for you. Just keep going. And I'm glad to see that you've recognized that you have improved. And that's an important thing. You always want to recognize when you've improved, but you also don't want to become complacent. So it's a, you know, those two things together. Question from Soren. He says, and this is new vocabulary unlocked for biaoshi. I've been reading up on the different usages of gun as I learned in the link below. However, I don't quite understand why this character is used in the first sentence. I would greatly appreciate the explanation. Worst case, I thought I'd flag it in case it isn't clear for others too. So the sentence is, which basically means I indicated to him, I expressed to him that there's no need to be polite. And so I linked in the show notes below an article. Uh, this is an article that's available to people on the course. If you're not in the course, well, uh, you know, you'll have great articles like this on the course. But uh, it's an article on he, gun, and yu, which is basically the connector or relator for putting nouns together. So it could be and, with, or to. But the main thing is 我跟他. You could also say 我和他表示了. Um, so it's just indicating the two in the sentence. Well, I indicated to him. So it's the relationship between you and him is established right at the beginning of the sentence. 我跟他, or I and him. 我跟他, uh, and then 表示了不用客气. So it's just establishing who did you indicate that you don't need to be polite to. It was him. And the connector between me and him is gun. It's the same as hu, and it's the same as yu. Next, we have Sebastian Lassard on It's a Word for Bai. Is there a part of the course where grammar is taught? Yes, there is. He's in phase two if he's in It's a Word for Bai. So we're not focused on grammar yet. We're focused mostly on characters and introducing new mnemonic techniques for learning vocabulary in phase two, which we're also gonna be making some improvements to in the near future. But as for grammar, first of all, uh, Sebastian, you're early in the course, so you maybe haven't learned our philosophy on grammar yet, but while we do have grammar lessons, the way that we introduce them is we have a few different underlying principles for how we introduce this stuff. So one is that you will always see the grammar point without an explanation several times before we actually introduce the explanation. Why? Because if I just tell you, here's how you use X and you've never seen X before, and you've never even seen a sentence that uses this structure before, then it's just a random fact that makes no that you have no connection with. And it's gonna be like, it's one of those things where if you watched a lesson, you'd be like, okay, I think I understand maybe kind of whatever. There's no context. But if I say, see these 10 sentences that you've already seen, and you've seen the English translation, you've kind of got a feel for them, well, here's how that works. Then it's more like a light bulb going off, as opposed to a, yeah, Okay, you know, so that's the difference in emotion and how it feels. So that's the one thing. But also, grammar explanations or teaching grammar should be about 2% of your grammar acquisition. 98% should be reading, 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 listening, 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 listening to that which you can understand. Your brain is evolved to recognize grammatical patterns because it's desperate to understand the people around you. We 
as babies, must understand our parents. It's a huge base desire that we need to understand our parents, we need to communicate with our parents, and you know, then communicate to the people around our parents, our siblings, and our, then eventually our friends. This is a deep, deep need from an evolutionary basis. So what that means is that you do not need to give your brain training wheels on this. Your brain is already more, your unconscious mind is already way more powerful than your conscious mind when it comes to pattern recognition and grammar. So why am I emphasizing that? Because the way you're going to get grammar down is by reading longer form content that you can understand, which is what the Mandarin Blueprint Method works you up into. So you're in phase two right now. Phase two is focused on making sure that the vocabulary you learn is understandable because you know the characters that make it up and you know the components that make up those characters and you know the pinyin that makes up those pronunciations and the tones and all of that. So, so you built that up and by doing that, you've essentially made it so that you can then take those words you understand and put them together into simple sentences. And then those simple sentences are, are comprehensible. Now, of course, in phase three, that's what you start to do. You have eight levels of phase three. You get lots of sentences. You start to get a sense of grammar. And in phase three, we also start to introduce some grammar lessons. But when you get to phase four, then you start taking those sentences and putting them together into longer form paragraphs, opinion pieces, conversations, uh, short stories. And then you're starting to get even more context for recognizing those patterns. So like, sure, you could recognize a pattern at the level of the sentence. For example, I might say, 我对他说, and I could say, 对 means that you're, uh, go, talk, you're towards something, and then you say a verb. So, I towards him speak. So there, now you know how to use dui, but you better have seen dui before that, otherwise it's not going to make too much sense. And so if I say that in the context of a sentence, sure, but when you're in the context of a paragraph, you get the context of what situation might exist where you say, so you must have something larger than the sentence in order to start to get a sense of the grammar there. And then in phase five, we get into longer form stories that have a plot at the level of several paragraphs. So you have, you know, a beginning, middle, and end to a story that gives you another sense of when you might say one thing or another. And then, of course, when you get to the intermediate course, each level is going to end with three long articles that are using the vocabulary from that level, as well as giving you even more comprehensible input. So there ends up, there's 20 levels in the intermediate course. There's three long form articles at the end of each level. So there's 60 articles. By the end of that, your sense of grammar is going to be really, really strong. And then the grammar lessons will be more of like a, hey, we're just tipping off your unconscious mind. We're just giving it a little, a little hint in one direction or the other, which we are capable of doing. But like I said, 2% of the time, 98% of the time should be trusting your evolved unconscious grammar recognition machine. That's my long, long answer to a one sentence question. I'm a bit loquacious sometimes. And Lee on nasal final yuan and xuanzu. So we have, this is for the yu final with the a-n nasal yuan. Luke, question, when I hear you pronouncing taiyuan le, sorry, can't do tones on a keyboard. I'm not hearing the n sound in yuan. Could you clarify, please? Thanks. So, environment, government, there's ends in those words, but did you hear them? Probably not. 
And the same thing can sometimes happen with nasal finals that end in an. It depends on what comes after it. So, now, if I really want to, I can articulate the n there. But a lot of times with the n sound, in the context of a sentence, in the flow of a sentence, you might not actually hear it. And so that's totally normal in the same way that the n sometimes will, uh, you know, fall out of certain words like environment or government in English, the same thing can happen in Chinese. I do believe Luke explains this at some point during the uh, pronunciation mastery course. Can't remember exactly which lesson it is, but that's really the answer. Sometimes, and I mean, it, it depends on where you, what word you're saying, you know, um, you know, yuanzi, that's a backyard or like a, a little courtyard, yuanzi. Maybe you can sort of hear the end there. It sort of depends. It just depends on what character or pronunciation comes after it. But the point is, it's fine. It doesn't matter that it's not there. Sometimes uh, you can think about saying it, but even when you produce it, it still doesn't really come out and it kind of doesn't come out in the wash. So uh, just remember that if the end sometimes kind of falls out of something like uh, that's fine. No big deal. Next question from Sebastian on level seven complete. He says, when you show the slide with the total characters for the course, is it the foundation course or does it include the intermediate as well? In the foundation course, it's the foundation course characters. So when you get to the intermediate course, you'll start to get to the level reviews and they'll show, you know, obviously way more characters and words from there. Um, this is two, there's two reasons why one is just practical. We made the foundation course first. So as we were making the foundation course, we didn't know what the order of the intermediate course was in the same way in the intermediate course, we don't know what the advanced course order is going to be and what the order of the words words are going to be yet. So we couldn't put it there. But uh, secondly, there's another practical reason for it, which is that when you're making goals and you're setting up your roadmap, it's actually really important not to, like, I don't know, if I'm traveling across, say, uh, the United States, and I'm starting from Pennsylvania, and I'm heading west, having the map of Pennsylvania first is kind of reasonable, you know, and not having necessarily the map, like, if I'm trying to look at the map of the entire United States, while I'm driving to try to figure out where to go next, it's too large, I need to focus on getting out of Pennsylvania first, and then I'll you know, expand my map a little bit and start to see, you know, how I'm fitting into the whole thing. So there's a little bit of that too. You know, if you see like, oh my gosh, I have so far to go, then you could start to feel maybe discouraged. And we don't want that because at the end of the day, of course, the only way to get to fluency is to continue day by day. And, you know, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Thank you for that, Lao Tzu, uh, that, that wisdom, that Taoist wisdom. And, you know, so you, you don't necessarily always want to look at the longest and biggest perspective. So, you know, there's that too. So focus on finishing the foundation course first, then focusing on finishing the intermediate course and, you know, break it down as much as you can. Focus on finishing this lesson or finishing this uh, <laughs> explanation on a podcast. Just keep it into that small manageable chunks and then occasionally zoom out. But you'll get a chance to zoom out at the end of the foundation course anyway when you get into the intermediate course. So that's the answer for that, Sebastian. Another one from Sebastian on casting call for MI. If I used someone's house as a set, can I use that person as an actor? Or would that be too confusing? So I'm not exactly sure. In There's two possible contexts that Sebastian may be asking this. But 
suppose you use your friend uh, Matt's house as one of your sets. And uh, Matt, who's, you know, the person's house you chose, he is not um, one of your actors. Then when you're in Matt's house, if he's there, totally fine. The only way it might get confusing is if Matt was one of your actors for some something else. So suppose you picked Matt to be your actor for M. Well, and his house is the representation of uh, A-N. And you were learning a character, Nan, meaning uh, man, let's say. And for N, you had Nicolas Cage, right? Well, if you were to have a scene with at Matt's house and both Matt and Nicolas Cage were there... That would be confusing because it's like, is it Nan or is it Man, right? Because Matt's a representation of M, Nicolas Cage is the representation of N, so which is it? But if you didn't choose Matt to be any of your characters, uh, any of your actors, then the fact that Nicolas Cage is there will mean uh, that it's N-A-N, not M-A-N, and uh, Matt is just an extra to help make the scene clearer. So that's totally fine. That's really, to be honest, regardless of what context you were asking that in, that's the answer. Is that, yes, you can use them so long as they aren't one of your other actors. And that's what we call using extras. So in the same way, so suppose that uh, the Hulk is your representation of H.U. And Captain America isn't one of your uh, actors. It's okay to have Captain America in the scene because Captain America relates to the Hulk in the sense that they're both Avengers. So, um... That's totally fine. Next, William Beeman on new vocabulary unlocked for 左右. Hi, in 我们公司有两百名左右员工. Is 名 some kind of counter for persons? Thank you. So, yes, and what I love about this is that William is starting to have that language module take off. Because he looks at this sentence. 我们公司, okay, there's the subject, our company. 有两百 has 200 ming, doesn't know what that means yet, 左右, approximately, yuan gong. And so, yuan gong means employee. So, he goes, well, what does ming mean here? Well, it must be a measure word. What is being measured? Well, clearly, it's yuan gong, right? It's the employees. So, I guess ming must be a measure word, because if I, I had said if the sentence had said, Yo liang bai ge, zuo yuan gong, he would have no problem with that, right? Easy. So the fact that ge gets replaced with ming means that ming must be a measure word. And so, therefore, he's already got that language module operating. And this is our philosophy on measure words, actually. You do not need to specifically learn measure words. Surprise! <laughs> because through the hands of movie method, you learn individual characters. And... By learning individual characters, you'll recognize a character. That's the only, because measure words are always one character. So if a measure word's always one character, that means that as long as you know the character, you know the pronunciation, when you see it in context of a sentence, you'll realize, oh, that's normally where g goes, because g is the universal measure word, but it got replaced. So it doesn't say it says All right, so the measure word for table must be jang. It's not it's So the measure word for a piece of paper must be jung, right? And this is the kind of thing where you go, oh, the language module itself solves this problem. 
it becomes unnecessary to focus on measure words. And it's an instinct that people will have. They'll go, should I learn all the measure words? And it's like, nope, you do not need to. You're Because it's such a simple structure. Number plus measure word plus thing being measured, which is always a noun, right? So, I, I, it, well, it could be uh, an action. You could be measuring actions. He, you know, or measuring uh, a time is also another thing you could be doing, which is an exact, well, at times, kind of a noun. <laughs> Don't don't think about time too much. Um, but you know when it comes to uh, you know you he ta da lo wo liang xia, uh, wo ma la ta yi dun. So ma is a scold, and uh, that's kind of an action, and so you could measure the action. Um, but the action is sort of serving as a noun, and also nouns don't really exist because everything is a process. Oh man, the Taoists they keep influencing my my brain. But yeah, so the point is, and, and then just to give a little bit of explanation here, ming as a measure word is used um, for people in the context of something like this. Like uh, it, it's respectful, and it's kind of like recognizing that everybody has a name in the company. That it has liang bai ming yuan gong. So there are uh, 200 names of employees. I mean, obviously, it's not that's not how you would translate it, but it's the point being that it's kind of respectful. Um, you know, uh, you might say that in this is something you'll say in classes. So, uh, if you want to say first in your class, you'd say ming, right? So, if you got the best GPA in your class, you're ming, right? And so, the ming is representing a person, but it's like a respectful sort of, um, representation of your uh like status or abilities i guess so it's kind of a a way of thinking of ming but again you didn't really need me to explain that if you read enough sentences that had the measure word for people as ming you start to recognize hmm seems to be in situations like classes and uh and work and areas where somebody might be a little bit more respectful and you wouldn't need me to explain it so once again just keep reading Next, we have Jack on new vocabulary unlocked for Xiangxin. In the second sentence, Gumen is translated as my buddy. Should it be Gumar? The answer is it doesn't have to be. I will say that people say Gumar more often than they say Gumen. So, like, this is just the word that means dude or buddy, right? So, hey, dude. Um, and so I hear people say Gumar a lot more often than I see Gumen. However, they're both technically correct. In the same way that some people say, I'm a little bit afraid of him. Um, but the majority of people say, right? It's a, just a difference in accent, really. Uh, sometimes the R will make a difference in the meaning, but a lot of times it's just a vocal flair, a little more common in the North, but then there's certain words like gumar that seem to kind of be the same regardless. So uh, that's kind of the answer to that. Dom Thompson on vocab unlocked from guy, which is in the intermediate course. And the sentence is, 我大概已经到火车站了. Does this mean something like, I've just arrived at the station? My literal translation doesn't seem to make sense. I briefly already arrived at the station. So it looks like you have a little bit of mistranslation for da guy. So da guy just means approximately. So guy means the general situation. Uh, it's kind of uh, an approximation, like a guy cool is a summary, usually at the beginning of like a research paper or at the beginning of a, a book is the guy cool. It's the the generalized summary. And so guy is kind of general. Da 
means for the most part in this case. So obviously dot means big or for the most part. So the, for the most part in general, I've already arrived at the train station. So it's just saying I've practically already arrived at the train station. Don't worry, right? If he said, uh, that would also be okay, but he's even trying to emphasize it by saying, I'm pretty much already there. Like, even though I'm technically not already there, I'm practically already there. So that's all that means. And, uh, yeah, daga is a very uh, useful word. It's a little bit more formal than chabudul, but, uh, they are used in a very similar fashion. Next question from William Beeman on it's a word for yue. Hi, this construction puzzles me a bit. It is the ta First, having the verb so close to the beginning of the phrase is quote unquote different. Then having le right before the person with whom the appointment with no connector is also odd. I was expecting a construction like to indicate with whom I had quote unquote date or an appointment. So is this a correct sentence? Or how about this? It's definitely a bit of a strange verb. So let's take a look at a couple of the sentences from that lesson. So you'll notice in this construction, we have, I made an appointment and it's made because of the le. If I said, I guess it could be either happening in the moment or it could be a, a plan. But is the, the process of making an appointment is completed. So so who and then to do what, right? Right, so I made an appointment with Xiaoming to go eat. And then uh, in this case, you're specifying the time. I made an appointment with her uh, to eat today. And so I get what William is going for here. And he's saying, like, in other, in, with other verbs, I ate food with her. But when you're making an appointment, this is uh, it's kind of a, I don't know if it's a special verb. It's just that the point of the verb is that the entire verb is saying make an appointment. Means to make an appointment. It's far more efficient than the make an appointment. One make an appointment. Five syllables versus <laughs> so I can see how that might feel a little weird, but actually means make an appointment. So ta or ta is all you need to say for make an appointment, and then you could stop there, and it's just generally I've made an appointment with with him, and then. Uh, the rest of the sentence is made an appointment to do what, if you want. Uh, that's fine. Now, it, what William is asking is, here's here's a correct, the sentence is wrong. Is correct. And why? Because is the word for a date. It's the noun version. So, is a character that has a few different meanings. We've learned hui as meaning uh, will do something, as able to do something, like I'm able to speak Chinese. Uh, uh, is I will come. Uh, and the third meaning is a meeting of some sort. So uh, means to hold a meeting, right? So in this case, it's a it's a 
a, a meeting that was an appointment. So it's a date, right? And uh, just like the word date in English, um, you know, the reason we call it a date between a man and a woman, like a romantic date, is because you've set a time to do it. It's kind of funny how, like, that the idea of setting a time to meet with somebody became the word for the romantic element of it. And the same thing is true of Chinese. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean a uh, romantic date, but it can. That is also its meaning. So, 我跟她一起约会了 would mean I went on a date with her. Um, but the act of creating the appointment is just 约, and you use it just like any subject verb object. 我打他, I hit him. 我吃饭, I eat 饭. I eat the meal or the rice, right? Um, 我约他, subject verb object. And so it's really actually that simple. So I, I get why you're saying it was different, but it's not actually that uncommon of construction. It's a simpler construction in a way. So the noun, 约会, so if it was a noun and you're saying, I went on a date with her, 我跟她一起约会了, that's fine. Um, but if you're saying, I made an appointment with her to go eat, it's 我约了她吃饭. So hopefully that clears that up. Let's move on to the next question from Paulette Jenner on It's a Word for Ban. This question comes up a lot, and so I'm... I'm trying to think of ways that we can make sure that we integrate this into the course more often, but hey, this is why we have it on the podcast, and this is why podcast videos end up on the course. So she says, I noticed that gan in the final example is gan with a fourth tone, meaning work, to do work, to do work. But we just recently learned gan as gan. I'm confused because I thought that even when words slash syllables sounded the same, they had different characters, such as with the different meanings of ta, what am I missing? So, yeah, it's 20% of characters have a secondary or tertiary or even sometimes they have four pronunciations. That's pretty rare, but, like, um, so 20% of characters have multiple pronunciations, and that literally translates to multiple sound character. Duo, in, zi. So multiple duo, uh, sound, in, zi character, right? So duo, in, zi. And... We always teach the most common pronunciation. Now, as it happens, the very first character we teach that isn't a number is gan. And that's mostly because gan is a very simple character. It's just uh, two horizontal lines and a vertical line, right? So it's a very simple character. We teach it very early, early in the course. Its primary pronunciation is gan, and its primary meaning is dry. Now, gan happens to be a doyin zi, and it has an alternate pronunciation of gan which means to do work or to do something. It's a very dynamic character. Now, we don't teach you that right at the beginning because it's we don't want to overwhelm you with this type of stuff. And gan happens to be a bit of an exception in the sense that most characters that have an alternate pronunciation, the alternate pronunciation is very low frequency, usually. And gan is one of the exceptions where the second pronunciation is actually also high frequency. But we're not trying to overwhelm you in the beginning by saying, hey, this is the fifth character you've learned, but by the way, it, it's both first and uh, fourth tone, and by the way, it has these two different unrelated meanings. We're not trying to do that to you at the beginning of the course. So the fact is that gan has a secondary pronunciation, gan, which will come up in context loads of times, and you're going to see it loads of times throughout the course, and you will get it because... In our experience, the fact that you learn the primary meaning and pronunciation means that you're covering a lot of your bases. So think about it. 
by learning gan as meaning dry and having, uh, you know, Gary Oldman outside the entrance of your AN set or something, then you figured out a lot about the character already. You know that it's G-A-N. You know that it, it, it has um, two main components, the shi component and the razor blade component, or alternately the twins component and the staff component. Either way, it's two horizontal lines and a vertical line. You know this stuff already. So then when you switch it uh, and you learn the secondary pronunciation, the character itself hasn't changed. So you already know that. You know the components, and you and even in this in this case, the pronunciation only changed tone. So the fact that you knew that it was gan before, the fact that you switch it to a fourth tone is only one change. Now, sometimes when there's a doyin zi, the second pronunciation is not the same as the first pronunciation. But in this case, the only difference is the tone change. So even easier. And then, uh, of course, once you get into sentences and longer form content, you'll have even more context to figure out how to pronounce some of this stuff. So don't worry too much about this at this point, uh, Paulette. I would say that you're going to run across this as you move forward, and it's no big deal. Just recognize that occasionally characters can have an alternate pronunciation. The vast majority of time they have an alter, alternate pronunciation. It's not something you need to learn until you're much more advanced. Um, and then occasionally you'll run into something like Gan, where there is uh, a secondary pronunciation that's very common. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, wait, why hasn't this come up yet? Remember that there are a lot of lessons ahead, and we are going to talk about this uh, in the future, in future lessons. Because you're only on, it's a word for ban, which means you're very early in the course. You're only in uh, level two. Next, Benjamin Reese on New Vocabulary Unlocked for Xiongdi. I'm struggling with translating. Would somebody be able to explain it to me more literally? So first of all, this is a sentence that is a part of a longer form phase four story. And you can usually tell this because in phase four, some of the sentences are required. They have a little asterisk. And so this is one of those sentences that I guarantee you, once you see it in the context of the larger form content, it's going to make sense. But let's take a look at the sentence and break it down. Qian is your subject. Qian means money. Qian zai duo. So even more, again more is like the literal translation, but qian even more also. So I get that this is a little weird. So again more also compared not on top. So bi bu shang. So think about this literally. Bi means to compare. Shang means above or on top. And we know that the bu de construction is an infix. So if I say bi bu shang, there's no way to compare the money I have to baba de gongsi. Baba de gongsi is my dad's company. So qian zai duo. So even if I had more money, Still, yeah, also, yeah, can't compare to the my father's company, right? And this this is from a longer form content where um, the speaker is, uh, I'm sorry, this is in phase five. So this the, this is related to um, the longer form content called Honesty, Cheng Shi, and it's about uh, a father who's deciding who, which of his sons should inherit his company. And so... It's a very successful company, and he's uh, at the you know towards the end of his life, so he's deciding who, which of his three sons should inherit the company. And what they're trying to get across is that of all the sons, even if they had more money, Tian Zai Duo, they still yeah, they still could not compare to the money of the 
uh, father's company. Bi bu shang. So bi is compared to shang would mean to be more like bi. Shang would technically mean is compared to above. So like more money in this case. But bi bu shang means it's impossible to be above. So it doesn't compare to. There isn't even a comparison. Bi bu shang. Right? So qian zai duo ye bi bu shang baba de gong si. So hopefully that makes sense. But I get that that's kind of a weird sentence uh, in a lot of ways. But again, it makes more sense in the context of the larger paragraph, which is why you must have longer form paragraphs to understand at a, a deeper level. You know, some people in the language learning community will say that you can stay at the sentence level uh, and that's fine. You can you don't need to make your language acquisition materials um go higher than the sentence level. And while I sort of get that from one degree, like theoretically, if you had a sentence or two for all of the most common 10,000 words uh, and you just did that and then you started reading longer form content, you'd have a lot of good knowledge in your brain. But the longer form content is so important for getting the context of why you would even say the sentence in the first place. What context might you say uh, these different things? Uh, for example, well, maybe you'd say that in the context of trying to figure out who's going to inherit father's company, right? Like it's like that you need that sometimes to A, make the process more interesting, but B, just to get a sense of when these things might happen. It's very important. So anyway, that's uh, all for the comments that are just general comments and questions. Let's move on to the movie scene shares, the full mnemonic scenes that represent a Chinese character. Scene number one is from Della Fuller on Make a Movie for Jiu. Jessica is in the backyard of the Oval with a highlighter pen and a poster of Beijing on which she is highlighting exactly the best route through Beijing in order to take in all of the wonderful sights. She wants the audience members to know exactly where to go when they go to Beijing so that they get the most enjoyment out of this beautiful city. I like it. Jessica's representation of J.I. Oval must be, uh, maybe she means the Oval Office, I'm not sure, but like the Oval uh, is clearly her set, and she's in the backyard, so that's the pronunciation covered. The highlighter pen is the right side component, and the poster of Beijing is the left side component. And of course, Jiu. Jiu has a lot of meanings, which you've probably already come across if you're reading the sentences, and it's a, it's mostly a grammatical particle that is not actually that hard to understand if you just get it in context a bunch of times, but still, one of the things you might say with Jiu is Jiu Shi, uh, which means exactly, precisely, yes, Jiu Shi, right? And so... Uh, that's a great scene. Love it. River Nixon on Make a Movie for Anne. I am familiar with the works and philosophy of Rudolf Steiner because my children attended a Waldorf school. Oh, that's awesome. I would never have connected at ease in this way, but now I think I will steal your good idea. Thanks for the share. So I imagine that Rudolf Steiner, uh, I haven't particularly read about Waldorf schools, although I have read a little bit about Sudbury schools and Montessori schools, and I know that it's in a similar educational philosophy. Um, and so being at ease, which is the meaning of an, is of course very important for, um, for children. And so, yeah, that makes sense. And so, yeah, you could easily have something related to the Waldorf school uh, as your keyword connection for that character or something related to children's education if you're not familiar with Waldorf. 
Della Fuller on Make a Movie for Yue. Queen Elizabeth is in the backyard of Burnett with a werewolf on a treadmill. Nice. <laughs> so treadmill is the left side slash bottom component, and werewolf is clearly the chung turn into. So turn into a werewolf. Yue. She is doing a study to see how far a werewolf can run. The werewolf is exhausted. Its tongue is hanging out the side of its mouth, and it keeps looking at the queen with pleading eyes, but she just replies, more, more. And yeah, it can also mean to overcome. And so the idea of him being at the end of his rope on the treadmill, he needs to overcome that uh, that sense. You know, more and more, overcome, that's sort of very similar. Chao yue is the word for overcome. Chao yue zi wo means overcome oneself, overcome uh, challenges. So that's pretty cool. Nice. Interesting one here from Mike Rochford on Make a Movie for La, which means spicy. Has anyone noticed that their own stories have gotten shorter? It seems that the reason there are so few stories posted is because it takes much longer to type them down than to just come up with them. Yes, I love this, Michael. Thank you. Um, I've found that quite often my story is just one sentence that contains everything I need to know. Maybe we're just becoming our own rock stars. If I didn't need to have the necessary time to finish my Anki, I could easily do 30 movies per night. I am now moving at a much faster rate of acquisition of characters than I ever have before. I think this course is just so amazing. My tutor has has a hard time keeping up with me and thinks I am just pretending to learn all these new characters. Ha! The only reason now that I am typing anything is because I hit my own self-imposed time clock and don't want to stop. When is the wall supposed to show up? I have yet to get tired and want to take a break. Well, you know, um, gosh, this, this is a great comment. First of all, well, there's two, there is actually also a practical reason why there aren't too many stories posted in the intermediate course, which is that the intermediate course is newer. And so there's fewer people that have posted on it. And also, you know, there's, uh, there's the fact that not as many people get to the intermediate course. Sometimes people get start with a head of steam and then life gets in the way and they have to take a break from learning Mandarin. So there's that too. But you're right, though, because I bet a lot of the people on the intermediate course are just they're just getting on with it because they're good at it now. By the time you get to the intermediate course, you've done at least 592 scenes. So you're pretty good at them. Anything you do 592 times, you're going to be not bad at. And so you're going to be flying through these scenes. And um, as for the wall, well, listen, you know, I don't think you're going to hit a wall. I mean, why should you? You know, it's like you it's only about 3000 characters you need to learn. I mean, if you want to get really fancy, you can learn like 5000 characters if you want. But to be honest, those extra characters aren't that important to learn. And you'll probably learn them easily through the context of the rest of uh, your reading anyway. So there's no need to think that you will even hit a wall. So don't worry about it. And uh, yeah, that's this is just so great to hear. I mean, it's exactly what you want. You want it to be at that point where it's just like, Bing, bang, boom, got my set, actor props, and they're doing this thing, and I'm good, right? And then you move on. And then next thing you know, you can learn in an hour maybe uh, 30 characters, right? And so it's like your average two minutes a character, which is, I mean, being kind of conservative, you could learn potentially even more. Soren on Make a Movie for Gun. My G actor is outside my EN set with a giant set of human feet. He smashes the heel of one foot of the giant human feet with a sledgehammer. Oh, boy. As it starts bleeding, he screams, the heel won't heal, but the other heel is healed. Nice. I like it. So the use of uh, homonyms. So nice. So he's got the healing heel. Uh, awesome. And uh, 
Of course, the sledgehammer being the blunt object that represents the right side component, the giant human feet being the left side component, and he hits the heel. So there actually is a visual representation of the heel, uh, but there's also uh, the homonyms that he uses there. That's awesome. Well done, Soren. Alex Sumray on Make a Movie for La. He's, he's responding to Mike Rochford's comment, which I've mentioned earlier. He says, Indeed, Mike, and some of my stories these days are pretty shoddy, just shoehorning the props into locations, but it's doing the job. Like you, I feel I could just blitz through these characters, but Anki and fitting in listening and reading practice means just taking it slow and steady in the knowledge that eventually, someday in the future, we'll get to that magical 1500, then 3000 mark. I'll race you there, Mike. Well, that's you. What are you guys, after my own heart? Come on. It's great. I love that. Uh, very, very well done, guys. Um, <laughs> the idea that you're racing each other, that's, that's so cool. And But you're right, Alex. You know, it's like, it's all got to be done. There's no avoiding it. You got to get the context. You got to see the words. You got to take your time with them. But you get faster at everything, don't you? Especially the individual character learning. And also, you know... There's no absolute rule about this stuff. You know, you can always just decide, you know, I'm just going to smash through the characters first and then I'll go back and work on the uh, the sentences and all of that. But, you know, it's also good to do it all at the same time. They've both got their advantages. Della Fuller on Make a Movie for Cien, which means salty or salt. Sharon is in her kitchen with a werewolf, razor blade, and the Rolling Stones mouth. Nice. She takes out a block of salt and shaves off a small piece with the razor blade. Nice, okay. She tosses it at the werewolf, who gulps it down and complains, salty. She shaves off another piece and tosses it into the Rolling Stones' mouth, who also complains, salty. And of course, if you get too salty, of course you can imagine the actual salty taste, because we can visualize taste, right? You can just sort of, I don't have any salt in my mouth right now, but I can still pretend I have something salty in my mouth. And if something's too salty, your, your mouth will start to get dry, you might smack your lips a little bit so like you can have the uh, werewolf and the Rolling Stones mouth doing that too. And just make sure when you're cutting with the razor blade, you really feel the razor blade in your hand. And uh, I guess Sharon really feels the razor blade in her hand. So you make sure that that's there. But overall, that's a great scene. Love it. Tyson on Make a Movie for T. So this is like T is into kick. And so T would be the word you would use for play soccer or football. Uh, kick. The soccer ball, the football. Zu Cho. My T actress, T.I. actress, finds Bigfoot, left side component, in the front yard of my childhood home, kicking a can of Easy Cheese, the right side component, E, all over the place as if it was a football. <laughs> There's an argument between the two of them about not kicking the Easy Cheese and a threat about kicking Bigfoot if he doesn't stop kicking the Easy Cheese. Bigfoot ignores my T.I. actress and continues kicking the Easy Cheese until she, who has a bit of a temper, makes good on her threat. Ouch. So, nice, hilarious, Bigfoot playing soccer with an Easy Cheese. This is the type of thing that, it's like, this is so bizarre, but you're going to remember it. And then I like that you got the actor's personality involved because she's got a bit of a temper. I bet that's actually true. So, nice. Christine on Make a Movie for Hey. Harrison Ford, in his persona as Indiana Jones is on an archaeological expedition somewhere in the desert. And in the backyard, you can see some ruins that look suspiciously like my old student residence, my EI location. He is sitting and warming his toes at the campfire. Nice. So I like that you're taking Harrison Ford and putting him as Indiana Jones. That's perfectly fine to do. And um, yeah, like <laughs> his old student, her old student residence, which is her EI set. I like it. And uh, 
warming his toes at the campfire. So let's just see here. Where's the explanation? I'm, I'm wondering where the explanation of the keyword is here, because hay means either black or dark. And so archaeological expedition somewhere in the desert. And in the background, you can see some ruins. Um, he is sitting and warming his toes at the campfire. I'm not seeing the keyword here. So looks like we might be missing that keyword from this particular scene, but uh, it wouldn't take much to... Like, what I love about the Henza movie method is that this is already a good uh, structure, and then all we would need to add in now is an element of things all turning black. Like, so he's sitting and warming his toes at the campfire when suddenly the uh, student residence starts to, like, there's, like, a, a growth of black mold that starts to come around and cover everything, and it turns, and the sky turns dark and black, and there's, like, uh, background music that's all scary, and Indiana Jones, his his clothes all turn black, and, like, whatever, you know, so there's there's something that indicates the uh, keyword there. But, like I said, what's nice is that even if you forgot an element or you left out an element, you've already got a foundation on which to add it in. So, I like it. Nice. Della Fuller on Make a Movie for Shwai. Shrek has just stepped out of the shower and is clad only in a towel. He hears a noise and quickly grabs his sword. So we got the two props there, a towel and a sword. But it is just Fiona who whistles and comments, handsome. <laughs> nice. Yeah, so Shwai means handsome. And uh, so, yeah, nice. That's a perfect Shrek in the bathroom. That covers the pronunciation. He's got the towel and the sword. <laughs> and there's something funny about somebody holding a sword while in a towel. And uh, Fiona being the extra related to Shrek. And she... That saying, the whistle, that's a good enough sound association. We all know that means, like, attractive. Um, obviously, usually we think of that as a inappropriate catcalling from men towards women, but no reason a woman couldn't do that towards a man, and we know what she means is, you're handsome. So I like that. Della Fuller on Make a Movie for Sh. Sean Connery and Brad Pitt are standing outside the entrance of my childhood home. Sean Connery is teaching Brad Pitt how to be a suave gentleman and has taken out a razor blade to shave Brad's beard, which he finds not to his liking while he discusses the finer points of his lesson, which he has listed on the blackboard in front of him. Driving a fast car, dating fast women, spying for the good guys. <laughs> nice. I like this too because, you know, we have... um. Sean Connery there and Brad Pitt, that's an interesting combo of people and their personas that they've shown, you know, on the, uh, on different, um, you know, movies and take it, takes out the razor blade to shave Brad's beard. Nice. Yeah. Great scene. Awesome. Della smashing it. And Della's, I've noticed that Della's, uh, scenes are getting stronger and stronger as they as they move on like they're incorporating more elements of the actors personalities and uh getting the props involved in a good way great stuff Della. you're doing you're doing awesome Della fuller on make a movie for sure which means city or market sean connery is in the backyard of my childhood home dressed in only a towel and a top hat i like that <laughs> the auction market is in full swing as the audience of ladies bid ever higher upon him. <laughs> nice. Simple scene. Gets across the idea very quickly. Uh, you know, obviously um, make the top hat and the towel stand out, but it's already kind of stands out in and of itself because it's a strange combo of clothing. Uh, so excellent stuff. That concludes this week's episode of the Mandarin Blueprint podcast. And we'll see you next week. And be sure to check out mandarinblueprint.com to learn more about the course.